The topic, the sermon title for today is called Overcoming Despair. How to overcome despair in our lives. Um, and you know, honestly, I, I was struggling with whether this sermon was even applicable, applicable, applicable to you guys. Um, and I was wrestling with it because, you know, like there might be some people who might struggle with anxiety or depression, whatever else, but I wondered if it represented the bulk of the ministry. What's really interesting is as I walked into the office today, I found this article or this magazine, Time Magazine, and it was something that was very recently published, and it was titled, Anxiety, Depression, and the American Adolescence. It was almost as if God was telling me that this is exactly the message that people need to hear, especially in this ministry, but I'm going to be preaching JG and elsewhere this week. And it was almost like an affirmation for God to say, yes, this is the message that my children need to hear. Let me read to you just the opening statement, opening paragraph, uh, anecdote to this article, okay? So the title of this article is, The Kids Are Not All Right. And then the subtitle says, American teens are anxious, depressed, and overwhelmed. Experts are struggling over how to help them. And this is the starting um, story, okay? It says, the first time Faith Ann Bishop cut herself, she was in eighth grade. It was two in the morning, and as her parents slept, she sat on the edge of the tub at her home outside Maine with a metal clip from a pen in her hand. Then she sliced into the soft skin near her ribs. There was blood and a sense of deep relief. It makes the world very quiet for a few seconds says Faith Ann. For a while, I didn't want to stop because it was my only coping mechanism. I hadn't learned any other way. The pain of the superficial wound was a momentary escape from the anxiety she was fighting constantly about grades, about her future, about relationships, about everything. I don't know if you guys can relate to this, and I pray to God that there aren't anyone in here who secretly, in the dark night of the soul, cut themselves. But you know, the reality might be that there might be some in this room, because I know that there are some in JG. In the seven years that I've been in youth ministry in Chicago and here, one thing that I've noticed is this incline, this, this skyrocketing of students who come to me for counseling, and it's always this battle against anxiety, distress, despair, and ultimately depression. You know, for a while, I thought, because I, I, I used to ask myself, and I was like, man, when I was in high school, I don't remember ever fighting at this level of depression. I don't remember my friends ever talking about it. So why, and I used to wonder, is it because I was unaware in high school or is there a rise in depression and anxiety with the current generation that the previous generations don't uh, face? And this is something that I was wrestling with and I was trying to figure out what the cause was. And then this article came out which confirmed that there is a dramatic rise in, in adolescents and teenagers who fight depression. Let me give you one statistic to um, back that up, okay? In this article, it says anxiety by the numbers. And it says 6.3 million teenagers between the ages of 13 to 18 have had some sort of anxiety disorder. Just to give you perspective, that's a quarter of the entire population in that age group. One in four have fought anxiety disorder. Three million fight 
depression. These are numbers that we've never seen. And this article goes on to talk about why that is and says you guys are part of the 9-11 generation. After the 9-11 generation where fear of terrorism is everywhere, where mass shooting is constantly being heard, and so you're plagued with things that I never, like, I remember the first time Columbine shooting ever happened, all of us were shocked, but that wasn't the reality. That wasn't something that we had to fight over. We never had to come up with an escape plan or, or, or some sort of security plan as a result. You know, right now we're planning for Family Fall Festival. Um, that's tomorrow. And, you know, uh, one thing that we've talked about was having heightened security measures. And Pastor Stacy has asked every single one of us to contact. She's the point of person. So if we see anything suspicious, to immediately contact because they have people on standby to meet that threat. These are things that we've never faced when I was a kid. And then the pressure of school you guys grew up in the recession era where everyone is stressed out and everyone's worried about finances, right? And then adding on to that social media, and I can go on and on and on, but it makes sense why so many people battle with anxiety, why so many people battle with depression. And so again, I think today's message, overcoming anxiety or overcoming despair will be very helpful for you guys. Okay? This is the definition for despair. The complete loss or absence of hope. The complete loss or absence of hope. Look at today's passage, okay? 1 Samuel 22 in verse 22, or verse uh, 2 actually, says this. Everyone, we're told, okay, let me give you a little bit of background, okay? King David he, this was before he was a king. He was anointed as a king, the next king to be, um, and he fought David or he fought Goliath in the big story of David and Goliath. And there was this um, celebration, and the nation were saying King Saul killed one, and David killed a thousand, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? We have this sort of um, excitement over this young David, but at the time, King Saul was still on the throne, and he was very jealous of David, and he felt threatened by David. So, his, so he started to go crazy, and he started to kill. He started to try to make the effort to kill David. And so David actually had to run away. And so this scene takes place in a cave where he's hiding out. And we're told that as he's hiding out, people heard about it. His family heard about it. So his family came to him as most of our families would come to us when they hear that we're in need. But what's very interesting is this. It says, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. You know, what's really interesting about those three things, distress, debt, and bitter in soul is this. Distress, when are you distressed? That usually takes place when there is an unfortunate circumstance that takes place. You could be in distress if you're driving your mom's car and you just got your permit and you get a speeding ticket. Wouldn't you guys be in a little bit of distress? You guys would be like, oh shoot, I'm going to get a beating of my life, right? Um, some of you guys, you guys get distressed when you don't get the grade that you need or, or when you don't get the score on an exam that you need so you don't get the grade that you were looking for and it's the end of the semester, at the end of the year, right? Oh man, you guys are already stressing out, okay? Distress happens when there's a particular event that is unfortunate. Does that make sense? 
When you're in debt, that means that a series of unfortunate events took place. You don't go into debt just overnight. But you go into debt when you make one bad decision after the next, maybe you've had one unfortunate event after the next, and after, after a series, you are now in a place where you owe other people other things. Does that make sense? But then bitter in soul is when you've been distressed, when you've been in debt for a long period of time, and you begin to lose hope. What we see in this passage is that there is a group of people who are fighting despair on all different levels. I want to share with you um, a time that I went through severe um, or a moment of despair. And to open that up, I want to read to you, I have a secret blog. No one knows about it. It's not public, so don't even try to look for it. Um, I never publish it, but it's online. And this is from... Okay, I'm going to be vulnerable with you guys, okay? I'm just going to read as is. I'm a terrible writer, okay? Um, But don't judge me. This was like years ago. This was the last year before I graduated from UCLA, okay? It says this. It's week six of spring quarter. There are 10 weeks in spring quarter. I have just a little over a month before graduation. More than ever before, time seems to be flying by. With five classes, 10 hours of work every week, and the responsibility of recon, which is a campus ministry, my schedule is jam-packed. With the very few rare weekends I have left, I try to visit old friends and time, spend time with my family as well. To think that I'll be graduating real soon and to be so preoccupied right now up until the last day here at UCLA makes me want to just take a breather. It'd be nice to freeze time and just relax with friends here, maybe to go to the beach and just hang out all day or drive up to PCH and not worry about anything. It'd also be nice to visit a museum or, some, or to do something more adventurous like camping. But no, my schedule is packed. People are busy. I am busy. This is life, I guess. In less than two months, I will be moving away from California to Chicago. I don't know what the next chapter holds for me, and I look forward to it. So I wrote this the first week of May in 2010. That following week, something happened to me that I could have never foreseen, okay? Um... So I was part of a campus fellowship called Recom, and I was the, the president of it. Um, and one of our members that I was discipling um, that entire year, it was his birthday, and so we wanted to surprise him in his dorm. And so we got together. It was around like 11.30 at night. We wanted to surprise him at midnight, and so we gathered together. And the way you, uh, UCLA or uh, California in general, it's very hilly. Um, it's not like here or even the uh, Midwest, but it's very hilly. And UCLA especially is known to be a very hilly campus. Okay? So we were at the top of the hill, and there were many different dorms that uh, we have in UCLA, and we were at the top, and we had to make our way down to the hill. Now, um, I wanted to be cool, and I wanted to show off, so I brought my shortboard. For those of you guys that don't know what a shortboard is, shortboard is basically like a skateboard, but it's kind of like, it's a hybrid between a surfboard and a sh- shortboard, or hybrid between a surfboard and a skateboard. So it's like a skateboard, but the wheels are bigger, and it, the whole purpose of it is to just cruise on the street, and you go really, really fast, okay? So I brought my shortboard, and I was like showing off and showing all my tricks, and people were getting on. They couldn't even like 
balance on it. And so I felt like extra cool with the fact that like I could, you know, uh, ride this thing. And so we th- were at the top of the hill and we were headed to my friend's, or my, uh, yeah, my friend's dorm. And I wanted to impress the entire group. And so I just took off. I just went down and I was like cruising. I had wind like blowing through my hair. And I was like, yeah, all these guys are looking behind. And I just felt, you know, I felt like this is the moment. Um, at the time, the street that I was on, it's usually a two-way street. But then for whatever reason, there was construction going on. And so they made it into a one-way street and it was, you're only supposed to go up and not down. But I was going down this hill, right? I was going full speed, and about halfway down this hill, I see a car turn up, and I see the headlights coming up. And in that moment, I panic because you, shortboard, especially with something like that, you can't break. There isn't a handle where you could break. So I panicked, and because I wanted to dodge the car, I made a sharp turn to the left, but the board hit the wheels. The wheels locked, and I launched forward. I flew about 40 feet in there like this. Like, I'm not even kidding you. So going super fast, I'm thinking I'm really cool, right? And then all of a sudden, I see a car panic, turn, wheels lock, and I'm, launching, I'm flying forward. I, this part is very blurry to me to this day. But all I remember is I put my hand out, but uh, my left hand hit the ground first, and the impact was so strong that it popped my shoulder and it dislocated. And the way our, our body works, right, you have this socket, and then you have this joint, and that's like how your arm is able to move, right? But when I, when I stretched my arm, it hit the ground, and my, the socket popped out, and then locked behind it. Not only that, but I, I skid about like four or five feet, and my entire knee was scraped. I was pretty... <laughs> I was wearing a pair of jeans, and it completely ripped, and both my knees were just bleeding, okay? <laughs> you know, but for me, you know what I was thinking? I was thinking, oh, this is so embarrassing. They, they're looking at me right now. I was so embarrassed. Like, like, I was bleeding. I was a mess. And I got up. I hobbled, and I tried to pop my shoulder back in, but it hurt too much, and I couldn't. I, like, pushed it down, and it, like, I felt so much pain I couldn't do anything, right? The car that was there, it just like, the, the person didn't even get out of the car. I think this person was like shocked, right? So imagine this. I, I, so I pop my shoulder. I'm bleeding from my knee, right? I pick up the skateboard, and now I'm doing this, right? <laughs> like I'm trying to pop the shoulder in. I'm taking my skateboard, and then I disappear into the woods. <laughs> like I think to this day, that driver, like I, I feel so bad. That person's going to need counseling, um, and will never think twice about or will always be afraid to take a turn. But for me, this was my logic. If I sit here and call 911, which I needed, I need immediate medical attention. If I call 911, it's going to take them forever to get here. And then they're going to have to take me back, and it's going to cost a lot of money. UCLA, we have an amazing uh, campus uh, hospital. It's one of the best in the nation. And, so, and I knew that it was about a 10-minute walk or a 5-minute walk. And so in my calculation, I was like, call 911 or go there myself. Go there. And so then I started to hobble my way because I couldn't even go on the skateboard anymore because I was nauseous by that point. I was bleeding from my knees, and I had 
a dislocated shoulder. I think like I like this is like my like ROTC days where I like took off my jacket and I made like a fake sling to like support it, and I was carrying the skateboard all the way through. But then that skateboard got really really heavy, and I couldn't I could barely walk, and I was I felt like I wanted to throw up. So I threw my skateboard into the the bushes, thinking okay I was like oh, I'll, I know where it is, I'll come back for it. And so I hobble and I finally get to the hospital. I think I'm like super light at this point, and my last words are I need help. <laughs> and usually you have to wait in the ER, but they're like, no, 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 come, come, come. And so they took me immediately into a room, and they're trying to pop my shoulder back in, but the doctors can't do it. And every time they're like, all right, one, two, three, ah, right? And it would just hurt. And I, I have a very high tolerance for pain, but it just wouldn't. So then they're like, finally, after about three hours of trying and constantly pulling my, and it's like locked, and it's like the muscles and the tendons are like, pulling against my bone and so it's like grinding at this point, right? They're like trying to pull it down, they couldn't do it. So they knocked me out and then and I woke up the next morning and my shoulder was back in place. <laughs> you know, when I woke up, I was like, I was pretty dazed, uh, drugged, and it almost felt like that moment where like, like in the movie Hangover, you just had a terrible night, you wake up, you're like, oh my goodness. And the reality starts to hit. First reality, I'm jacked up. Um, do you, guys, do you guys remember that, that blog that I read you a couple days before? I was like, man, I got two months left, one month before graduation, two months until I grow to, go to Chicago. I'm so busy. I got five classes, 10 hours of work. I wish I had a little bit of free time. I'm like, oh my gosh. So I finally get discharged from the hospital, and the first thing I notice is I'm missing my set of keys. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, this can't get any worse. So I called my roommate because I needed to get back home, but I didn't have a ride, um, and I didn't have uh, a key to my... <laughs> so apparently, the group that I was with, they had no idea because I, I guess they saw, <laughs> they saw me go down, and then they're, because they're so behind, they didn't see the whole accident. So they're like, Phil, where did you go? <laughs> you disappeared. And the whole night, I was, I was wrestling, and I was like crying with the doctor, right? <laughs> yeah, I called my roommate. It's like, Phil, where did you go? What happened? I was like, I'll tell you about it when I come home, right? He comes to pick me up, um, and then this is what happens, okay? So I lost my keys, right? But in my keychain, I had three set of keys. My house key, my car key, and my work key. I, I was working, I told you I was working 10 hours a week. I was a lab technician, and I was in charge of opening the shop, closing the shop, and in charge of hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment at a UCLA computer lab. I was missing that key, right? Here's the other thing. Um, I parked my car in a, it's free overnight, but UCLA is very strict with their parking. And I knew that if I didn't remove it, they're going to give me a $50 parking fee, parking ticket for every day that it's there. And yet, I don't have my keys, so I can't move my car. Uh, the only way I could get another set of car key was to call my parents, and I was too afraid to do it. So I said, all right, I'm going to wait a couple of days. I'm going to try to find my key and just backtrack and see if I can do it. And so I knew that I was getting a ticket. So I, I, I had to call my boss and be like, hey, an accident happened. I lost the key. I can't go to work. And then I realized, okay, now I'm going to be getting parking tickets, and it's going to cost a lot of money, okay? Not only that, um, I had five classes at UCLA, but the thing was I had to pass every single one of them because they were all requirements for graduation. In that month that I had left, I had seven exams and four 
research papers that I had to write. But here I was now, I had to take Vicodin, so I was drugged, so I wasn't in my right mind. And what would take 15 minutes for me to get ready, now it takes me about an hour because I couldn't move my shoulder at all. Not only that, I had a crutch on this side because this knee was too jacked up. I still have a scar to this day. I couldn't walk on it, right? So I had, I had a crutch on this side, sling on this side. Um, going to class, what, again, what would take 10, 15 minutes, now took about an hour or so. And, I, the fact, and it takes so much energy for me to go to class, to take notes, and I started to get really distressed, really anxious about my situation. What if I don't pass a class? What if I can't graduate? What if I have to delay? What, what if I can't go to Chicago and I've already planned everything out, right? So I'm freaking out and I'm thinking these things. And so each day that passed, I knew that I was getting a parking ticket for the car that I couldn't move. I told my boss eventually what happened and I had to tell him I lost the key and so you're gonna have to change all the locks to the doors. Um, Studying, remember I told you I was very like up to my neck with how busy I was with schoolwork? Now I had to still accomplish the same thing, but at 20% of my normal self and with so much more weight on my, on my shoulders, right? I'm thinking, oh my goodness, my parents are going to find out, you know, what if I don't, all, all these things, right? And it started to weigh me down. To make matters worse, I went back and I tried to look for my skateboard and it was gone. Someone stole it. I was so mad. I mean... Man, talk about like kicking someone when they're on the ground, right? But here's the worst part, and this is the last bit of my story. Like all of that alone brought so much burden and it was crushing me, right? But here's the last part. My sister was getting married in three weeks and she asked me to walk my mom down the aisle. That weekend, my sister came up to L.A. She heard what happened. She came with her friend in the car, and she saw me in a crutch and a sling. <laughs> and she just started to cry. And she's a very heartless person. She has no emotions. I've never seen her cry except for that day. Here I was, supposed to walk my mom down the aisle on the most important day of my sister's life. And I was all jacked up. I felt like my world was just imploding, it was just collapsing. I started to lose hope. I started to, for the first time in my life, not want to live anymore. My, my future started to close in and it started to darken. And I think that's what they were feeling. You know, the reality is every single one of us face despair to a certain degree. We all face anxiety, distress, bitterness to the soul to a certain degree. And if you didn't, I'd tell you, you're not living in this world because this world is jacked up. Not only is it jacked up, but we have an enemy who's constantly trying to make our lives miserable. You know, but the question I asked was, why did they go to David? I mean, I understand that his family would want to visit David when he's by himself in a cave. But why would they, that particular group, want to go to David? I think it's two reasons, okay? Number one, maybe it's because they found hope in him. 
They had heard about what he did against Goliath, right? They were part of maybe even praising with the rest of the nation when he defeated the nation, defeated Goliath and saved Israel. But more importantly, I think it was because they saw someone who was not only capable, who was not only a great leader, but also someone who was relatable. You see, King Saul was a king, but he was high and mighty. You couldn't approach him. And even if you went to him with your problem, like the people here, King Saul is not going to understand. His life was good all the days of his life. But David, he was in the trenches. He knew what it was like to feel despair, to feel pressure, to feel depressed. And I think there's something comforting about going to someone who was not only capable, but who also related to them. Does that make sense? And so we're told that all of them gathered to, sorry, all of them gathered to David. Okay, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. Last question, but as a commander, commander of this group of people, what did David do? What did David do for this group of jacked up people, people who started to lose hope? You know, in Psalm chapter 57, if you guys have your Bibles, I want you to open up there. If not, in your Bible study today, reflect on this passage because it's a beautiful psalm. But I'm going to read to you Psalm 57, and I want you to just listen to it, okay? Because this psalm is something that he wrote when this was happening, when he was in the cave and he himself felt despair, when he himself felt like the world was collapsing, okay? This is what he said. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass away. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purposes for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. Awake, the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praise to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. You know what set David apart from all the others? It's that even when he faced trials, his anchor was in the Lord. Remember the article that I read you? This girl cut herself because she had no other way to turn, no one to turn to, no other coping mechanism for the distress that she felt. You see, the reality is whether God loves you or not, every single one of us will face distress in this life. Many of us think that when we face hardship, when we face hurt or trial or distress, we think it's from God. 
but it's not. It's the reality of the sinful and broken world. But if you don't have God as your anchor, if you don't have God as your savior, then what are you going to turn to? To alcohol? To unhealthy relationships? To cutting? To other things? What set David apart from the rest was that in the midst of trials, his anchor and his hope was still in the Lord. What allowed David to take this motley group, this 400 men who lost hope in life and bring back hope, give them life, was not to say, come to me, everyone. I will give you rest. I will give you help. But to say, let me point you to the real Savior. You know, I feel you. I'm in the trenches with you. I feel the pain just like you do. But let's all look to the only one who can help us in this very situation. My question to you right now is, what about you? What about in your life as you face the stress? As you go into debt of some sort, as you become bitter in your soul, what do you turn to? Who do you turn to? That will have all the implications of whether you're able to overcome your despair or not. Sure, you can go see a shrink. You can go see a counselor. They'll prescribe you drugs. They will drug you so that you don't feel the anxiety so that you feel less of the pressure and the stress of life. But that's not the solution. That that's only suppressing the issue at hand. God alone can save. Amen? You know what's really amazing about the story? You had 400 people who were hurting, who lost hope in life, and they went to David. And what David did was, everyone, let's go to Christ. Let's rely on the Lord. And so they followed him and were told in this passage that he became a commander over them and he led them. You know what happened eventually? Not only was he able to heal his 400 men, but the people who were rejected, the people who were despised, the people that were unwelcomed within the city gates because of their situation, right? They eventually not only go back into the city, but they sit in king's court with King David when he's throne. Years down the road, after King Saul dies, David becomes the next king. And his 400 men, you know what happened to them? The ones that were in distress, the ones that were overwhelmed with life, they become king's most trusted councilmen and soldiers. Those who were rejected by the kingdom are now ushered into the kingdom. But here's the last part, application. So what? Why should we care? We don't have David today. There isn't a David around today. And I'm here to tell you this morning that there is a greater David. And that greater David is Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 11, 28 to 30, this is what Jesus says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
But you know what's even more amazing? Just like David, many of us look at God and say, oh, he's high and mighty. He's way out there. He doesn't know my pains. He doesn't know what I'm struggling through. Guess what? In Hebrews chapter 4, 15, it says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. You know what's beautiful? In the New Living Translation, I don't really like that particular translation, but I think they do a really good job of capturing the heart of that message. It says this, the high priest, talking about Jesus Christ, it says, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. He understands our pain. He understands our hardships. For he faced all the same testings we did, but did not sin You see, in Jesus, right, we have someone who understands us, who can relate with us, who's been in the trenches with us. But it gets even better. Not only does he understand us, but we're told that he loves us. And in John 3.16, it reveals the intensity of his love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave up his one and only son. Have you thought about that for a second? How much can someone so love you that they're willing to give up their only child for you? The level of God's love for you is so intense that he's even willing to give up his own son, Jesus Christ. But here's the last thing. In times of despair, David looked to God for deliverance. Why? Because God was greater than his problems. God alone had the power to deliver David from his situations. But what about the greater David? What about Jesus? Who did he look to for this deliverance? You see, he looked to himself and he took it upon himself the greatest pain for our sake. Let's think about it for a second, okay? The three things that were described, distressed, in debt, and bitter in soul. Distressed. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus is praying the night before his crucifixion, we're told this is what Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That's a language of distress. What about our debt? We're told for the wages of sin, your sin, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.24, Jesus bore our sins. He bore our debt. And in his body on the cross, so that we might not die to sin, but to live in righteousness. Bitter in soul, when Jesus was hung on that cross, what did he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus took, the the problems that you feel right now, they're real and they're hurtful, but your greatest distress, your greatest debt, Your greatest bitterness of soul is not here on earth, but it's waiting for you after you die. In what greater distress can you be than to know that you're going to be in hell for the rest of your life? 
How in the world are you going to pay for the sins of your, all the sins that you've committed over the years? How will you not be bitter in soul for the rest of eternity as you're in hell? And yet we're told that Jesus Christ came to take upon himself all of our pain and suffering. I know my sermon's getting long and I'm, I'll close, okay? I'm almost there, bear with me. But this is important. How do we overcome despair in our lives? How do we overcome the constant attacks that are coming into our lives that are threatening our joy and our happiness and our sense of peace? It is by looking to our ultimate commander, looking at our ultimate David. You see, David took 400 men and led them to kingdom, kingdom of Israel. For anyone who follows Christ, anyone who trusts in Christ, not only will they be healed of their despair here on earth, but guess what? We will all be ushered into the kingdom of God. You know, just like these men who were outside hiding in the caves, facing constant hardships and trials and testings in their faith, they eventually found their place in the palace. As long as we're on this side of heaven, as long as we're living here, we're going to be facing hardships, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're rich or not, whether you're smart or not, every single one of us universally will face hardship. But only those who follow Christ, only those who have Christ as their commander will find themselves in the palace of God. Amen? My exhortation to you this morning is in times of hardship, in times when you're in distress, when you are anxious, when you begin to fall into depression, turn your eyes to Jesus. Know that he is your Lord and he is your Savior. Psalm 57, let that be your prayer as you cry out to God. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. I want to end by showing you two pictures. That was my sister's wedding. Do you see a crutch or a sling? You know, after this whole event happened and it settled, I was crushed by this despair that was over me. I mean, one after next and just over and over again. So I got together with my group of staff, my Christian brothers and sisters, a small group, and I opened up to them. You know, I joke around that I don't have any tears in my eyes, but on that night, one night, I just broke down and I cried. And I said, I'm so broken, I'm so hopeless, can you guys help me? That night, they surrounded me. They said, hey, we're here. We're family. We're going to help, help, help get you through this. They took turns giving me rides to campus. Some of them packed lunches for me. Uh, <laughs> I could go on and on, talk about the power of community. But in three weeks, one of the most amazing things is that I was able to be healthy enough. to, And I, my, my shoulder... My mom's holding my shoulder. She like barely could touch it. I was like, oh my, be careful. It still hurts. It still hurts, right? She's like barely touching it. But I was just healthy enough to be able to walk my mom down the aisle. 
and I was able to graduate in time. In this season of my life, I realized, just like King David, no matter what trials we face, God is still bigger. God can get us out of it. And if I look to other things, I will only continue to be buried in the overwhelming burden and the pressure of life. My challenge to you, whether it's now or later in life, when you face hardship, look to Jesus. Go to God, for he is your savior now, and he is your ultimate savior for the rest of eternity. Can you guys close your eyes and bow your heads? As I ask for the praise team to come up, and we're going to be closing with a song called Still. And I think it's a beautiful song that captures this Psalm 57 moment where we say, we will look to you and to you alone. But before we do, I want to spend a moment where it's just between you and God, where you pray to God over your situation right now. Some of you are anxious because of school. It's hard. It's not like what you imagine. From middle school coming up to high school, you begin to feel overwhelmed. You juniors, you guys are barely floating, barely above the waters. For some of you who've immigrated here, who are still learning language and you feel like you have to do double the work, you feel that pressure and it feels heavy. For others of you, your parents are constantly fighting and you get scared at nights. You wonder what's going to happen to your family. Some people in this room might struggle with friendships or relationships. But the reality is that all of us are feeling distressed to a certain degree. I want you to take that and go to God. Take that and say, God, deliver me. God, be my Savior. God, help me to look to you in times of my desperation. Forgive me for blaming you for the hurt in my life when in reality, you're the only help over the despairs in my life. I take that step of faith towards you as I am hurting. God, hear my prayers. Deliver me. Spend a moment praying that prayer and we'll go into our closing song. Let's pray. 